boy was saying his bedtime prayers with his mom. He said, Lord, bless mommy, daddy, bless baby Matthew, and please God. And he raised his voice to an almost shouting level, bring me a new bicycle for my birthday. Mom replied, honey, God's not deaf, you know. He can hear you. The boy says, I know, but grandma's in the next room and she's hard of hearing. I used to pray that way when I was a little kid. So I knew my grandmother would get me anything I wanted. How do you pray? Better yet, for what do you pray? Regardless of the boy's motives here in that little example, we could say one thing about his prayer. It was a prayer with a purpose, right? Had purpose. And whenever there is purpose in prayer, there is power in prayer. Prayer without purpose is impotent. There's no power when we pray with no purpose. Haphazardly, unintelligibly. When all we care about is uttering words, those words fall from our lips and sink lifelessly to the floor. They will never get past the ceiling, much up to heaven. John Chrysostom, a fourth century early church father, and regarded as one of the greatest orators of the early church. In fact, his name means the golden-mouthed one. Said this about prayer, quote, The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, staved the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Prayer is an all-efficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mind which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings, unquote. Why don't people write that way anymore? Dude, <laughs> prayer's cool. That's what we read today, right? Do you view prayer the way he did? How about the way Paul did? Paul was a man of intense prayer. You cannot read through his letters without marveling at his prayerful character. He seemed to know that without prayer, there is no power, and that without power, there is no promotion of the gospel. But he also knew that without purpose, prayer becomes impotent. Paul's prayers were not mere words woven together to impress his readers. They had an objective. They had meaning. They had power. They possessed the tenor of spiritual maturity. As one man has beautifully identified, perfect prayer is only another name for love. You ever thought about it that way? That was Paul's idea as well. His petitions were born out of a mature spiritual heart overflowing with great love for God and great love for others. And that determined how he prayed and what he prayed for. What are you praying for? And how are you praying for it? Powerful prayer 
is purposeful prayer. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, if you would, in your Bibles. We're going to look at verses 9 to 11 this morning. We've said in the past few weeks that Paul's focus in chapter 1 of this letter to the Philippians is the promotion of the gospel. We've seen so far that promoting the gospel involves having the proper perspective on the work. Secondly, last time, it, we saw that it involves personal participation and partnership in the work. And today, in the midst of Paul's heartfelt prayer here, we find that the powerful promotion of the gospel involves purposeful prayer for the workers. Follow along with me as I read verses 9 to 11. Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. It becomes instantly clear here that Paul is praying with a distinct purpose for these people, namely their spiritual maturity. We should be praying for each other's growth to maturity in Christ. Do you ever pray that for another person? We often pray for people, but when was the last time that you wrote to somebody and you listed three or four specific things that you were praying for on their behalf? When was the last time you did that? I know somebody that did it just this week. Somebody on our staff. It's an interesting thing that it fell just about the time that I'm preaching on this. Three or four specific things that you're praying for someone on their behalf. Paul's model is worth imitating. But what are the specifics that Paul prayed for? Let me suggest three of Paul's purposeful requests that we could easily employ for each other. The first one is this. Paul prayed for an abounding love. An abounding love. Verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Paul prays that the Philippians' love would continue to overflow with excess. There was a great amount of love between Paul and these Philippians, yet he prays that they would continually overflow even more and more, it's really emphatic in the original language, with a superabundance of love. And the word abound here means to be richly furnished with something, indicating that there's way more than enough. Even though there wasn't an overabundance of love with them, his prayer was for yet still more. You can never have too much love. One commentator put it this way, love never reaches the saturation point. Is that true? Love is the result of the Spirit's work in your life. It enables us to effectively use our spiritual gifts. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that if I have, if I do all these things for the gospel and I don't have love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, right? It's the super glue of maturity which produces unity in the church. Colossians chapter 3, 
another one of Paul's prison epistles. Verses 12 to 14 says this. It'll be on the screen for you. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. But here's the kicker. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. However, we must understand that the kind, what kind of love that Paul's talking about here. This abounding love that Paul refers to is not a worldly kind of love. And we've got all sorts of warped ideas about what love really is, don't we? And if you get your idea of love from the world of movies, magazines, and Facebook, music, soap operas, and novels like Fifty Shades of Grey, for example, you will never know the overflowing love that Paul talks about here in this text. By the way, I mentioned that book. There's a reason why I mentioned that book. I've read recently that there is no statistical difference in the percentage of Christians versus overall women who've read the, that series, Fifty Shades of Grey. It's characterized by some as mommy porn, if you've never heard of it. It's the erotic romance novel by British author E.L. James' has top bestseller lists around the world, including the United Kingdom and the United States. The series has sold over 100 million copies worldwide and been translated into 52 languages. And it set the record as the fastest-selling paperback of all time. That is not the kind of love that Paul is talking about. The cascading love, type of love to which Paul refers here is not simply a free-for-all, love-everything-in-sight kind of love, do-anything-you-want-with-it kind of love. As one author put it, when love floods indiscriminately, we love everything even the wrong things. And that is one of the problems currently in our culture. The love of which Paul speaks is a love regulated. It's a love regulated by truth, by the truth of God's Word. And it results in a couple of things in this text. Real love, Paul says, abounds in real knowledge or full knowledge. Look at verse 9 again. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. Real knowledge here means full knowledge. It's knowledge gained not only from information and intellect, but by experience and insight. It refers to having a full understanding of God's Word by living it in life, not simply by knowing it by heart. Abounding love is, is love gift-wrapped not only in the truth of God's Word, but with the practical experience of living within the sphere of God's will. It's the difference between the biblical head knowledge of a young believer and the seasoned, balanced understanding of a man or woman who has walked and talked with God throughout his or her life. Kenneth Weiss, who has written volumes on the Greek New Testament, explains it like this. He says, this is the difference between a young convert and a matured believer. The former has not had time to live long enough to live out the Word in his life. The latter has. The former, if his life is wholly yielded, 
is a delight to look upon in his Christian life, as one would enjoy the vigor and sparkle of youth. The latter, in his mellowed, well-rounded, matured, and fully developed Christian experience, his life is full of tender reminiscences of these years of companionship with the Lord Jesus, watch this now, has the fragrance of heavenly things. Think about that. Because a person has walked with Christ for so long and so deeply, their life exudes the fragrance of heavenly things about him. Do you know anybody like that? That's what we all want to have someday, isn't it? At least I do. I don't know about you. But let me let you in on a little secret. It takes time. It takes time. It takes what I like to refer to as spiritual mileage. You got to have mileage, spiritually speaking. It requires that habitual lifestyle of knowing God's Word and doing God's will on a regular basis, a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson puts it. Someday, I would like to have people say, that the fragrance of heavenly things is all about me, wouldn't you? That my life is saturated with the scent of God. I love being around people like that. It's like you want to get next to them because you're hoping it's going to rub off on you. That's what Paul was praying for in this, for this church. That's what we should be praying for, for each other. Ernie talked about having a brother in Christ that you can walk with. These are the kinds of things that brothers should be praying about for and with each other. And sisters, and husbands, and wives, pastors, and people, people and pastors. That's what Paul's talking about. We should be praying for each other that we would have deep spiritual maturity in Christ. Real love abounds in real knowledge. Also, Paul says here, it's regulated. Real love abounds in deep insight. Again, in verse 9, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Insight or discernment is also a mark of spiritual maturity. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament calls it something else called wisdom. Wisdom. I like to call it spiritual depth perception. Spiritual depth perception. How is your depth perception spiritually speaking? You ever thought about it that way? Have you ever encountered anyone who didn't have depth perception? Physically speaking? Because they have difficulty judging distances or spatial relationships, a person with, spirit, with depth perception problems makes, has very difficult time making good decisions involving those things. It's extremely challenging for them. My granddaughter, one of my granddaughters, is blind in one eye. Because depth perception requires binocular vision, binocular vision 
Hers is severely limited, her depth perception. She has a huge difficulty in things that we would normally take for granted, like, for example, descending spiral staircases. You try doing that with one eye closed. Or entering and exiting an escalator. I mean, I have a hard enough time with those things with two eyes. But with one eye, it's totally challenging. You don't see the difference in the, in the steps. And you could trip and fall. Guys, depth perception becomes very, very important to you when your wife wants to parallel park the new truck. Spiritual depth perception becomes very important when making moral and ethical decisions in life. And that's what Paul's talking about here, spiritual depth perception, especially in how we apply Christian love in every circumstance in life. It determines how we speak, what we say, when we say it, or if we say anything at all. Spiritual depth perception determines how we act and who we act with. Spiritual insight or depth perception draws boundaries and directs us in our practical application of love. It just isn't love indiscriminately. Paul says that real knowledge and real insight is what regulates real love. How often do we convey the wrong meaning by saying the wrong words to people? By wrong actions? How often do we offend others by not knowing when to be quiet? It probably never dawned on you that we ought to be praying for the maturity of abounding love in each other's lives so that we can avoid these pitfalls, right? We should be. But there's a purposeful result of this abounding love that Paul prayed for as well. He prayed for excellence in judgment. That's the second thing. Excellence in judgment. Look at verse 10. I pray that your love may abound, in verse 9, with real knowledge and all discernment, so that, there's a purpose behind it, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. A sign on the wall of the Dallas Cowboys locker room displayed these words. The quality of a man's life is in direct proportion to his commitment to excellence. One objective of abounding love, according to Paul, is that we might strive for spiritual excellence, to be constantly on a quest for what is spiritually best in our lives. The pursuit of excellence in the Christian life means not being satisfied with asking only what is the right thing to do in this situation, but to go beyond that and ask God, what is the best thing to do in this situation? Approving what is excellent involves three things. Three things. If you're taking notes, write them down. Number one, it requires distinguishing what is best distinguishing what is best. The word approve here in verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, means to judge worthy, to approve after testing. In distinguishing what is best, there is always a testing procedure. It happens in schools, it happens in medicine, it happens in business, and it happens and ought to happen in the Christian life. Test things. 
in order to approve them. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul says, let a man examine himself before taking communion. That's the same word there. It means to test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, Paul says, but examine or test everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, particularly pertinent in this world. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are of God. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. This is kind of personal to me, but it also applies to every Christian. Paul writes to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, meaning approved by testing, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know, that scripture is not just for me as a pastor, that's for every Christian. And Romans 14, says, happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves. This testing for approval, it's a procedure in which we must be constantly engaged in this life. We must sift through things and test them for approval. But Paul says, don't just test for what is good. In some areas, there may be more than one option of good things to do that are biblical. A multiplicity of good choices that you can make. But Paul's praying here for something even more specific. He says we need to be able to distinguish what is best. And that's not always as easy to discern. That's why he prays for spiritual maturity. Going to Scripture to find out what is forbidden for us is the lowest level of Christian living. Let me say that again. Going to Scripture just to find out what is forbidden for you as a Christian is the lowest level of the Christian life. Bottom rung of the ladder. A lot of people are only concerned with avoiding what's forbidden, and they leave it at that. But the mature Christian who is striving for excellence, as Paul prays here, is concerned with what is the best course of action. To have the ability to know the right action in every given situation that you encounter. To know how to make moral decisions based on God's will in the give and take of everyday life. And know this, that there are areas where the Bible may not tell us specifically what we are to do, but what we are to be. Approving the things that are excellent not only involves distinguishing what is best, but also another thing, the second thing here, it requires deciding for what is best. Paul's clear intention in his prayer here is that the Philippians would be able to discern what is best and also decide for it to perform it. Some things in the Christian life are very clearly marked, good and bad, black and white, right or wrong. However, as you probably have encountered in your Christian life, there are many situations where the line is not so easily seen. Spiritual maturity enters into play here. Sometimes it's not a question of simply doing what is right, 
settling for the lowest level of commitment. Mature Christian love operates with a depth of insight results in doing not only what is right, but also what is best in God's eyes. Let me give you an example. You know that scripturally, the right thing to do is not get drunk, right? Scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Plenty of other scriptures. So you know, okay, don't get drunk. But God may call you to something better. He may want you to decide, personally, of your own free will, to never touch a drink again for the rest of your life so that your alcoholic brother or sister may not stumble to fall into sin. Would you be willing to do what is best for the sake of your brother and for the glory of God? Or will you hold on to your Christian liberty and freedom to drink the lowest level of spiritual commitment? That's just one example. There's probably a thousand others. But this is becoming more and more pertinent in the church today. From Saul of Tarsus to Sears and Roebuck, the key is to decide between good, better, and best. We must decide for what's best every time. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me show you what Paul thought about it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Skip down to verse 22. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. See Paul's maturity there? His spiritual depth perception? Move over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse 23. Paul readily admits, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, meaning not all things build people up or build me up in my spiritual life. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but for the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. See what Paul's bent was? Doing what is best in order to promote the progress of the gospel, even if it was inconvenient for him or even if it infringed on his own personal freedom and liberty in Christ. And you know what the key to all of this is? The key to all of this is a heart full of love, Paul says, not a head full of knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 8, the first three verses. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge, notice what... This is what I really want to point out here. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. 
And this is an important verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. According to these verses, Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge causes division, but love unifies. Knowledge is incomplete, but love makes it complete. Simple knowledge about God is woefully short-sighted, Paul says. Completeness or maturity is not in the theological fact that you know God, but in the humble realization that God knows you. It is good that you know God, but what is best is that God knows you. There's some scary examples of this in Scripture. Matthew chapter 7 is one of the scariest to me. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, we read about these people. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You may know all about who, who is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. You may know all about Jesus. You may even know the scriptures that describe him and his life and what salvation is. But not everyone, Paul's, uh, Jesus says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? They were even doing the works of God. And then I will declare to them, what's it say? Say it. I never knew you. You might have thought you knew me, but I didn't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, these are worthy things to pray for each other, right? You ever pray for another Christian or so-called Christian, professing Christian? Lord, I pray that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless at the day of Christ. We don't want anyone to meet Christ on that day and have him say, I never knew you. Lord, even though they look like a Christian to me, and I'm not judging their, their soul, but Lord, make it so it is real. <laughs> that they may abound in real discernment and approve the things that are excellent, that their life may be blameless and righteous before you. See, simple knowledge about God is short-sighted. James says, if we know what is the right thing to do, and I might add the best thing to do, and we don't do it, what does James say that is? Sin. James 4.17. If you know the right thing or the best thing to do and you don't do it, James says it's sin. We cannot just be content to slide by by the spiritual skin of our teeth. We need to strive for what's best, and that's what Paul prays for. Some of you know you should be giving yourself to more conversation with God, but you still don't pray. Some of you know you should be giving more of your time to God, but you're still unavailable. Some of you know you should be giving more money to God's work, but you still withhold it. Some of you know you should be visiting and encouraging people, but you still neglect it. These are the things that Paul is talking about. If we need to pray for anything, we need to pray as Paul prayed that every man and woman who names the name of Christ would not settle for mediocrity, 
but go beyond what is good and strive for what is best. Too many of us are settling for spiritual mediocrity instead of striving for spiritual maturity. Approving the things that are excellent requires distinguishing what is best, deciding for what is best, and thirdly, it results in demonstrating what is best. Demonstrating what is best, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. The objective of testing for spiritual excellence is living in spiritual sincerity and stability. That's the whole point of it. And sincere means pure, genuine. There's question about this, and you've heard me preach this probably before if you've been around for a long time, but this word sincere may have been derived from two words, son and to test. In other words, son tested. You've probably heard this before. Sincere is a Latin word, which means without wax, our English, sincere. The ancients had a very fine porcelain which had great value and was therefore expensive. Many times after firing in the kiln, tiny cracks would appear. Dishonest merchants would smear pearly white wax over the cracks and pass it on as genuine and pure. The only way to find flaws would be to hold the item up to the light, up to the sun, to see if the sun would shine through the cracks. And honest dealers would sometimes mark their flawless items sine sera, meaning sincere pure, undefiled, without wax. That's what Paul's talking about. That's genuine, unmixed, uncorrupted sincerity. No sham, no hypocrisy, no hidden cracks in character, above reproach. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means we recognize we're not perfect and don't pass ourselves off to be without wax so that we, our lives can be held up to the light of God's Word and come through as people of integrity, blameless, without offense. Well, that would be a cultural switch, wouldn't it? Christianity without a mask. How would the world react to that? Because those are the marks of spiritual maturity. Can you say that your motives are pure, that your conduct is transparent, that your word is trustworthy? In other words, are you, a, are you in truth what you appear to be on the outside? Are you afraid to be sun-tested, S-O-N? You and I ought to be able to step into the spotlight and say to people, you know what? I have nothing to hide. Watch me. Just watch my life. If I screw up, you're going to know it, and I'm going to know it, and I'm going to admit it. I'm not perfect, but my bent is for Jesus. That's the way we should be talking to people. This confident joy in that kind of living, you know, it imitates Christ. How long are we to strive for this kind of thing? What's it say here? Until the day of Christ. It's a long time or maybe tomorrow, whenever he appears for you. Thomas Akempis, an ancient German mystic who wrote the classic, The Imitation of Christ, said this. He said, if there is joy in the world, surely the man of pure heart possesses it. 
Remember that locker room message, the quality of a man's life is in direct proportion to his commitment to excellence? He asks the question, are we purifying our lives by striving for spiritual excellence? Paul's powerful prayer for the Philippians is very purposeful here, and so must ours be. He prayed for them to have an abounding love. He prayed for them to have excellent judgment. And finally, he prayed for them to have an abiding life. Look at verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The only conduit that will engender Christ's commendation is a life that is filled with the fruit of righteousness here, according to Paul, which comes through Jesus Christ, and it gives God all the glory. The product of an abiding life, according to this verse, is spiritual fruit. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. I said this before, I'll say it again. A transformed life is the demonstration of God working in the life of a believer. And there is no greater advertisement for the gospel of Jesus Christ than a truly transformed life that bears fruit in righteousness. Read Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 about the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Where does all that come from? Paul says here that it comes through Jesus Christ. And that lines up perfectly with John chapter 15, doesn't it? Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. In verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Believers are filled with the fruit of righteousness, not just sparsely scattered around, just a branch here and a branch there. Paul prays that they might be filled with it, weighted down, Bursting with fruit. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. It's interesting that those are combined like that. So the product of an abiding life in Christ is spiritual fruit. The power of an abiding life is Jesus Christ. In John 15, we just saw that. Verse 5, again, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Note the progression here from chapter 15 and verses 1 all the way to verse 5. It's bear fruit, bear more fruit, bear much fruit. This increasing progression here. But the point of an abiding life, says Paul, the last thing in verse 11, is the glory of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. That's also in John chapter 15. In verse 8, 
We see it. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Recently, a video clip of the wife of a very well-known televangelist was brought to my attention. She was teaching at their 43,000 attender church, biggest church in America. Some of you probably already know what I'm talking about. This is what she said, and I quote. She was teaching at a service. 43,000 people. When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, she says. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Happy, amen? Unquote. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks this question. What is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All things are done for God's glory and His alone because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, not for our good pleasure, Yes, we are happy when we do God's will, and he's happy, but he's not happy because we're happy. We're happy because he's happy. Happy, happy. <laughs> Listen, I don't read in John 15 where fruit trees make a great deal of noise when they produce fruit, do they? They're not saying, I'm happy because I'm full of fruit. They simply allow God's work to be done through them naturally as they abide in the vine. No noise, no self-glory, no self-aggrandizement. The difference, listen, the difference between spiritual fruit and religious activity is determined by how much credit we take versus how much credit God gets. Let me say that again. The difference between spiritual fruit and religious activity is determined by how much credit we take versus how much glory God gets. To Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And amen. Ann Landers ran this column on maturity. It reads like a modern version of the fruit of the Spirit, really. Years ago, she ran this column, and people have asked her, had asked her when she was able to, to repeat it time and time again in her columns. Here's her definition of maturity. And I might add, I went through these things and I looked, and it's all through Philippians. I can find verses in Philippians that support every single one of these statements. Number one, maturity is the ability to tolerate injustice without wanting to get even. Maturity is patience. It's the willingness to postpone immediate gratification in favor of the long-term gain. Maturity is perseverance, sweating out a project in the face of heavy opposition and discouraging setbacks. 
Maturity is the capacity to face unpleasantness and frustration, discomfort and defeat without complaint, collapse, or attempting to find someone to blame. Can you see Paul in his prison cell writing about joy instead of complaining or blaming somebody? It's right there in Philippians. Maturity is humility. It's being big enough to say, I was wrong. And when right, the mature person is able to forego the satisfaction of saying, I told you so. Maturity is the ability to evaluate a situation, make a decision, and stick with it. The immature spend their lives exploring possibilities, changing their minds, and in the end, doing nothing. Maturity means dependability, keeping one's word, coming through in a crisis. And finally, she said, maturity is the art of living in peace with that which we cannot change the courage to change the things that we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think she piggybacked on something there, prayer serenity. But it's true. So let me ask you as we close this message, are you striving toward spiritual maturity? Are we praying for each other with that purpose in our heads? Because the promotion of the gospel depends on that. Pray for the maturity of an abounding love. Pray that we would have the maturity of excellent judgment and pray for the maturity of an abiding life filled with spiritual fruit produced by the Spirit of Christ for the glory of God. Make that the the outline for your prayer this week. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the glory of your name. For the promise that if we abide in you, we will bear good fruit, much fruit, and you'll get the glory for it. Thank you for the model prayer that Paul has given us for abounding love, excellent judgment, and abiding life. May we take that into consideration as we pray for each other to mature in the faith till we see you one day face to face. And that day, we will be extremely glad. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.